Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley. I am co-host Connor McNamara-Stratton. And today we join you again returning after a bit of a hiatus to our usual read a poem and talk about a poem, read the poem again format. We had a significant break from that for a number of episodes now because we did a whole week on sonnets which featured a lot of different poems. And then in the month of May, we revisited an episode from a little while ago, and we also had an episode specifically about Palestinian poetry uh, and poetry from the Palestinian diaspora. It's always, been a while, Jack. It's I know, been it's, too uh, long. It's always an exciting time in the kingdom when we can join together and do this. Um because of that <laughs> recording break, we've not had a chance to adequately thank one of our listeners, Avi, who wrote in some very kind words about our week on sonnets. It has become tradition around here to close out National Poetry Month, the month of April, with a week of episodes. We did haiku in 2019. We did some comfort poetry in 2020. And in 2021, we took on the sonnet. And no full commitment but avi's suggestion of the villanelle is definitely being taken on board if you are not avi and you also are interested in villanelles let us know i love villanelles always down for a villanelle curious what others what others think we should uh be thinking about next Absolutely. Yeah. And Avi got in touch with us on Facebook, which is a great way to reach us. You can always send us a message. We are facebook.com slash close talking. You can also find us on Twitter. The show is at close talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And you can also send us an email. Always a great way to get in touch. Um, close talking poetry at gmail.com. But today we have come together to discuss yet another incredible poem this time by the Menominee Two-Spirit poet Christos, who is a pretty big deal. A very big deal. A very big deal. We'll get into Christos's biography a little bit, but first, just 
because it is a term that maybe not all of our listeners are familiar with, two-spirit is um, a particular one, and it sometimes gets conflated, I think, or at least uh, could be conflated with other existing terms and identities, but it is actually a particular um, term with a particular set of of meanings and definitions. Um, as we were talking about just before we came on air, the term itself is just a little bit older than we are. It was coined in 1990. And the idea behind it was to have a, a pan-Indian, was the language used at the time, term that could encompass people who embodied this sort of third gender space, which many different individual native traditions had different terms for and have different cultural places within their own spiritual or community traditions. Um, but Two-Spirit was created as sort of a different term. Actually, the Edmonton Public Library, I don't know if you've had the chance to go to Edmonton, Alberta, but if you do, great place. And their public library actually had on uh, a reading list, which we'll link to this, of uh, works by Two-Spirit writers provided two different definitions, uh, one of which is from Two-Spirit writer Joshua Whitehead. Um, the definition they gave is two-spirit, or two-s, originated in 1990 in Winnipeg as a pan-term that pays respect to the diversity of two-s across hundreds of nations, each with their own understanding, stories, and responsibilities for what a two-s person does and entails within their community. And the other definition is one that explicitly references the gender binary, so perhaps a less uh, progressive or useful definition, but from Indian country today, two-spirit people have both a male and female spirit within them and are blessed by their creator to see life through the eyes of both genders. And I think uh, Joshua Whitehead's definition is the sort of broader, more encompassing one, and there's an element in the Indian country today, one that might be useful just in terms of thinking in uh, like cultural terms about the gender binary that you would see upheld, perhaps annoyingly so in, uh, in culture at large, but is maybe not as useful for understanding the kind of essence of the two-spirit term. Yeah, definitely. Those are really helpful definitions. And we'll definitely link to, there's, there's quite a bit of good both writing and a podcast on that topic more specifically um, and two spirit identities and, and it's, it's history and it's lineage. Um, yeah. It's, it's helpful to bring up because I think this is like a bit of a, a preamble, but since we're on the topic of language um, and actually I'm in, I, I feel indebted to uh, a poet friend um, who I was in the MFA with, um hannah who in her work she thought a lot about the kind of the naming and the history of you know queer histories and and like people you know have been two-spirit in a way as long as there have been people and and people have been gay and people have been lesbian and and trans and queer and so the newness of the term is sometimes I appreciate us like talking about it like a historic, like a kind of a term that came into being because it's like, yeah, because it it's, I don't know, I'm struggling to articulate it, but. I feel like kind of what you're getting at is, is 
a little bit in what Joshua Whitehead says in defining the term, which is that like this isn't new, but this term can be one that draws together many different existing traditions and practices that acknowledge the existence of people who are two spirit. Um, and that can go by many different names in different places and in different cultures and in different communities and in different spiritualities, because there can often be a sort of spiritual side. Um, and he mentions like sometimes responsibilities that go along with being a two spirit person, but that the, the kind of creation of the two spirit term was to bring all of that together because it is a term in English particularly for indigenous communities, it can be an outward facing term uh, in some respects that like makes this vast and varied history scrutable to, to outside eyes. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, and, and I think one of the other, and this is maybe like a little less, but one of the other, the other things is like, sometimes I think in, in, in history, if you're reading a, a more, I don't know, quote unquote, mainstream account of things, there can be a, like one, one project or, you know, set of projects that some queer and trans writers and historians and scholars and people, you know, of all vocations are, you know, is, is kind of creating a, ancestry and a history um, that goes beyond the sort of date at which the the term of the identity began because that's kind of that can be one sort of difficulty and you see that in like you know uh, straight white men commenting on this or that historical figure speculating about someone's you know sexuality um but not like even though when you like look at it or think about it for a second it's like pretty damn obvious there's a common kind of erasure so i i think about it in that way and i think it's it's somewhat helpful in terms of thinking about two-spirit and the reasonness of the term but that necessarily that doesn't necessarily you know mean that the term doesn't contain you know like the the very very long history of indigenous individuals who have you know in, in embodied all sorts of genders and sexualities absolutely yeah as you were describing that i was thinking of like the classic a picture of two women from the 1870s and uh, it'll get posted online and everybody jokes about like, oh, yeah, I know they're very good friends like these two roommates, you know, <laughs> and uh, to to sort of describe the way that a lot of history has been done about yeah, it happens and we know about it most from like pretty famous figures. But you also hear about like, oh, yeah, so and so always lived with her friend, whoever like. <laughs> but yeah, I think that is very important that like it's a it is a new term for something that is very not new. Um, so Christos has written a lot um, not just poetry but a lot of poetry and uh, in addition to a bunch of different books has also been incredibly widely anthologized so you are very likely to pick up any number of anthologies and find Christos poems within and 
in addition to doing work, award-winning work, in fact, um, including the Audre Lorde Competition for Lesbians of Color and the Human Rights Freedom of Expression Award, um, a lot of activism work and with a particular focus. And again, this is someone who was sort of doing the work before this term was popularized, but very intersectional work. Um, and that included land rights advocacy, advocacy around sexual abuse, around indigenous rights, around Palestine, which has obviously a lot of resonance in terms of land rights uh, issues and forced removal and erasure, um, and also uh, has long advocated for the release of Leonard Peltier. And for anyone who doesn't know, Leonard Peltier has been incarcerated for decades now, accused of uh, killing FBI agents during a shootout on the Pine Ridge Reservation in 1975. And even though almost everyone agrees he should be free, still remains incarcerated. So just a, a, a really committed intersectional activist and advocate in addition to being a writer and very much infusing those two things together. Yeah, and they were born in like 1946. Um, yeah, it's, I, it's, I'm excited to talk about this poem um, because it, it was, I think, published in Christos's book, Fugitive Colors, which came out in 95, 1995, and uh, which was which was quite some time ago. And yet uh, some of the conversations <laughs> alluded to in the poem are 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 still still seem to be going on. So yeah <laughs> yeah it is a 26 year old poem that is very directly speaks to the present i think um and probably the last thing we should mention is that the poem is for alma benda goddard and uh i have not turned up specifics about alma benda goddard but uh there was scholarly work around the time that this poem came out done by someone of that name including a piece called Assessing the Lesbian Victim and uh, several others that are basically about domestic violence in uh, same-sex intimate partner relationships. Um, so my best guess is that this is for that academic doing that kind of work. And that is definitely like activism and research work that I imagine Christos being involved with and, and interested in around that time. Um, so with all that preamble, <laughs> shall we uh, shall we dive on in? Let's do it. All right. This poem is called Into the Racism Workshop by Christos for Alma Banda Goddard. My cynical feet ambled, prepared for indigestion, and blank faces of outrageous innocence, knowing I'd have to walk over years of media declaring were vanished or savage or pitiful or noble. My toes twitched when I saw so few brown faces. But really, when one eats racism every time one goes out one's door, the appeal of talking about it is minuscule. I sat with my back to the wall facing the door, after I changed the chairs to a circle, 
this doesn't really protect me, but I con myself into believing it does. One of the first speakers piped up, I'm only here because my friend is black and wanted me to do this with her. I've already done 300 too many racism workshops. Let it be entered into the book of stars that I did not kill her or shoot a scathing reply from the hip. I let it pass because I could tell she was very interested in taking up all the space with herself and would do it if I said a word. They all said something that I could turn into a poem, but I got tired and went to sleep behind my interested eyes. I learned that the most important part of these tortures is for them to speak about racism at all. Even showing up is heresy, because as we all know, racism is some vague thing that really doesn't exist, or is only the skinheads on a bad day, or isn't really a crucial problem, not as important certainly as queers being able to marry or get insurance for each other. When they turned to me as a resident expert on the subject, which, quite honestly, I can't for the life of me understand or make any sense out of, I spoke from my feet things I didn't know I knew of our connections, of the deadly poison that racism is for all of us. Maybe some of them were touched, but my bitch voice jumps in to say, not much. I heard back that someone thought I was brilliant. Does that mean that I speak well? Or that she was changed? It's only her change I need. Mm. Yeah. So there's obviously a lot in this poem. It's pretty straightforward, um, as has become our practice. A narrative breakdown is basically the speaker goes to a racism workshop that is mostly white and you are provided basically like an inner monologue of that experience. And there are different specific events that happen, but I think that's the basic overlay. And I think that that's pretty obvious in the poem itself. Um, but the particularities of it, I think are, uh, are fascinating. Yeah, I agree. In addition to it being very straightforward, the time gap that we were just talking about, I think also adds another layer to it because this is a poem that was published in 1995 and feels like it describes a phenomenon that is ongoing and has recently become, you know, more a more prevalent part of an ongoing conversation. Like this continued happening since this poem was written to today. But I think the the perspective that this poem is giving and the fact that there's a moment when white folks might be learning about racism is another aspect of what makes this poem really compelling because I mean, this is like on kind of a very basic gloss level, like the mid nineties were a time when folks were actually starting to learn more about racism. And by folks, I mean, mostly like progressive white people or liberal white people because there had been the Oklahoma City bombing. There had been like survivalist white power, neo-Nazi adjacent law enforcement interactions that had kind of put uh, that the, the kind of dangers of that movement that still existed had become very present in the way that something like maybe Charlottesville in 2017 did for a lot of folks. 
And that doesn't mean that this stuff wasn't always there and shouldn't always have been like interrogated and dealt with. But there were these kind of large scale events, particularly the Oklahoma City bombing, which did happen in 1995. But like you'll see a lot of representation in kind of serialized TV shows where the bad guy of the week is some weird survivalist neo-Nazi encampment. Like it was in the cultural zeitgeist and it's not entirely this clean, but after 9-11, number one, racism just becomes more socially acceptable in more different ways again. But also the conversation moves out from being a domestic conversation <laughs> and becomes about the international uh, you know, military engagements of the United States and the war on terror. So this kind of, I feel this poem bridging these two cultural moments, I think our current one, you could pick any number of moments that kind of ignited the current conversation that is being had, particularly around race and policing and incarceration. Obviously, uh, the murder of George Floyd last year, there's there's a lot of moments that lead to these kind of, when do the the white folks described in this poem begin to show up for racism seminars <laughs> like voluntarily because this is clearly i think this is also clearly like this isn't a workplace mandated thing this is like people chose to put themselves in what they probably consider very uncomfortable and like pat me on the back look what i'm doing kind of space and then to have that experience narrated by a queer person of color i think I think that provides a really important insight into what even the racism workshop space <laughs> can be about. Yeah, totally. Totally. I completely agree. Yeah. That's so, that's so interesting about just the fact, yeah, that the context around the, where, where this was near chronologically in the nineties and, and all that. And I mean, to me it speaks to like in in the broad strokes is like this this like perpetual amnesia and forgetting that white people are able to do about racism basically for lots of reasons but in, in some ways because the material white people have have remained in in power in sort of structural and systemic ways and and so it's 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 interesting reading this poem that reads like I feel like it's it could have been talking about something that was held last summer, you know, with, you know, <laughs> we were talking a little bit about the show, but like, you know, a reading group where people read White Fragility or like, you know, How to Be Anti-Racist or, you know, one of the like many best-selling books about racism and white supremacy and anti-racism and all that stuff. Yeah, it's just this bizarre. But then, of course, like, as the kind of poem articulates in so many ways, like, you know, for one, there's like, knowing I'd have to walk over years of media declaring we're vanished or savage or pitiful or noble, all of the sort of horrible and uh, tropes of indigenous people in the US that like, sort of phrasing of it is also like because it's it's this amazing lack of memory on the one hand of like oh racism wow 
Whereas like, there's also that extensive history that's unconscious of, you know, representation of indigenous people and black people and people of color of like in the media that is so overdetermining. anyway. And then, but then like, you know, the poem continues like my toes twitched when I saw so few brown faces, but really when one eats racism every time one goes out one's door, that says so much. For one, the police have been killing a thousand people every year for a long time. And that has always been disproportionately both black and native people. Um, and also just not investigating the deaths or disappearances of you know, black people, native people. Yeah. And yeah. And like, and then all the kind of kinds of police brutality that's, you know, not murder. Um, and then all the other sorts of racism that like for a white person, their memory <laughs> of like racism could be the times when those particular killings reached the cracked the media's uh, window and like made it out so they had to face it, you know, or like when, you know, like in Minneapolis since George Floyd was killed, like there have been at least three killings of black people in and around the city, Dalal E, Dante Wright, and now Winston Smith just last week. It's this strange and, you know, obviously we're both white and, um, you know, I think we both <laughs> try to like engage with this stuff more regularly and intentionally um, than at least I had probably done in the past. Um, but like, there's that, you know, the appeal of talking about it is minuscule. It's like, cause it's the same conversation. Like, and so, but. <laughs> and it's also like, if it is your life, yeah, there's nothing to say. It just is, you yeah. know? Um, I, yeah, I was lucky enough to be in, a, an African-American literature class in high school. Um, taught by a black teacher. And that was a very formative experience for my like budding young white boy teen understanding of race. And there were two things that I really took away from that that I think are really in line with what you're talking about. Um, the first is that he started the class by having us watch The Matrix, which I know being red-pilled now has a very particular internet context. But basically he had us watch it and anytime anybody would ask him like, Oh, why are we watching the matrix? He'd be like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you later. Like just watch the matrix. <laughs> so after like three days of watching the matrix, pretty much everybody in the class, like genius teaching technique. Also, everybody's like, what the, why are we watching the matrix? And he's like, because the matrix, the matrix is how a race works. It is the system that operates that controls everything in your life. And you either take the red pill and you can see and understand how that's happening or you don't and you can't. And so it is like the same, like take the red pill, like get red pill, see what's going on. Um, but he was doing it for good years before the internet made it shitty. 
Um, <laughs> let it be known. Let it be known. Mr. Alexander was on it. <laughs> it does remind me like uh, the glitch, the glitches in the matrix are like the moments for white people who like aren't thinking about it that often when finally, you know, the thing, you know, George Floyd's murder, like, like enters the mainstream, everything like that's the, the moment. But for people who stay in the matrix, it's just a glitch. Like it's just a, ooh. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, it's just that moment of uncomfortable deja vu. And then you move on with your existence where you get to like eat cyber yeah. steak and whatever. <laughs> um, no, that's really, that's a really good way of putting it. Um, the other thing that I distinctly remember from that class um, is that he had us watch these videos of racism workshops, like with a lot of white folks and not all white folks, but mostly. And a lot of it was just letting us see how these conversations play out and how defensive the white people become. It It's very powerful to see that and not be in it um, because you can obviously see who like their body language just shuts off. But like you see the person who just shuts down the second that the topic is broached and whatever. Um, but he he walked us through it as well and would sort of talk about how the conversation was going, why, you know, a certain argument that might on its face seem reasonable from a white person is actually denying um, reality. But there's a quote that this I remember it as being a, per, a, a black person in one of these workshops, a black guy. It may have been from another thing, but I remember it as being in one of these workshop videos and it was sort of at the end of one of these like kind of contentious, like everybody's tired. They've been there for a while. And this guy just turns to one of the people and says, every day I wake up and think about the fact that I'm black. And that clearly had a huge impact on the person that he was like talking to. And I remember thinking like, wow, I almost never think about the fact that I'm white in that moment. That was like, one of those like glass shattering, like, whoa, I, I just started understanding something. And it's like a pretty basic realization, <laughs> obviously, but like that, I, I think is the value in having, like, I feel like I had a classroom version of this poem through those experiences of like, the teacher was a person of color decoding what's happening in a racism workshop for you. And the amount of growth that our class got out of that, as opposed to just trying to replicate that kind of workshop environment and the work that that would have then asked students to do and whether it would have worked or not. And would we have had productive conversations or not having that experience narrated and also having that every day I wake up and think about the fact that I'm black moment were like very growthful for me. And what I am mindful of as well which I think is also what you were sort of getting at is like, that's not an interesting revelation to someone who wakes up every day and thinks about the fact that they are black or brown or indigenous. I don't need to go around being like, holy shit, guys, have you heard the news? Wow. Because that's nothing. That is a, that is like my growing and just <laughs> like not <laughs> does not need to be put on someone else. And I feel like that is uh I've I've mentioned it before on the pod, I think, but, you know, James Baldwin on the Dick Cavett show saying it's new to you, it's not new to me is like another big kind of, I think, 
unlocking for a lot of conversations around race. We're like, if you're white, it might be new to you. It is probably not new outside of your experience and your experience is in all experience. And I feel like that is something that this poem does a great job of, of presenting, which is like, I so get this because I live it every day and I have to go sit around a bunch of people who it is very new to like that is that is rough the uh man the the passage that really sticks for me is where uh the speaker in the poem brings in another voice um one of the first speakers piped up i'm only here because my friend is black and wanted me to do this which like okay think about why that might be um, with her i've already done 300 too many racism workshops and then you return to the speaker's voice saying, and I love the like exasperation yeah. and the kind of the cosmic exasperation of let it be entered into the book of stars. Here's my submission for sainthood that I yeah. did not kill her or shoot a scathing reply from the hip. I let it pass because I could tell she was very interested in taking up all the space with herself and would do it if I said a word, which to me says in the speaker's mind they're going i could destroy this woman but she will begin crying and then we will have to deal with that <laughs> which i have heard many i have not personally been present for this but many accounts of this happening yeah absolutely um yeah and then i love that like they all said something that i could turn into a poem oh yes but i got tired <laughs> <laughs> and went to sleep behind my interested eyes. And I love that because it it's, <laughs> I don't know, it's just, it's, I mean, it's obviously funny, but it's also, you know, here we are in the poem. She picked the one, she picked one of the one, one of the many things she turned into a poem. It cuts down the, the poem itself in a <laughs> Right, in a it's like, way. this could have been a book, but I saved you the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it moves from that very specific interaction into you know it zooms out as as the speaker checks out basically you know i've learned that the most important part of these tortures is for them to speak about racism at all even showing up as heresy um and then kind of the speaker like you know sarcastically like because we as we all know racism is some vague thing that really doesn't exist or is only the skinheads on a bad day or isn't really a crucial problem. Um, I don't know. I, I find that very, it's, it's the, the poem is obviously very funny. And also it's interesting because there's a, you know, by the end of the poem, there's actually something that, that happens that's pretty profound, but the, the poem has a very know it, like justified knowingness in the like eh. um yeah it's a very sort of like wry exasperated knowingness yeah um, um i love it i love the tone totally yeah um and that makes it so wonderful when it when it moves into it's very well like when they turn to me as resident expert on the subject john is quite honestly i can't for the life of me understand or make any sense out of um and that is still in that kind of same kind of vibe um 
<laughs> you know, I spoke for my feet, things I didn't know I knew of our connections, the deadly poison that racism is for all of us. Um, maybe some of them were touched, but my bitch voice jumps in to say not much, which is that skepticism. It's like the poems moving into this. It's like, it's, it's moving out of its knowingness and its sarcastic exasperation, but then it's halted again by its own. Like the poem is very aware, <laughs> you know, um, but then I heard back that someone thought I was brilliant. Does that mean that I speak well or that she was changed? It's only her change I need. The, the first part, you know, I spoke for my feet, which I love that it's so simple, but it's like speaking from the gut, but it's like, it's, it's lower, <laughs> it's from the feet. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it's cool. Um, but there is this, you know, things I didn't know I knew of our connections of the deadly poison that racism is for all of us. I mean, that is like, this point is very important. And I think is, is so often not expressed very well, where it's either uh, talked about like, you know, everyone suffers from racism, like even white people, it's damaged. And it's like, okay, but it's pretty disproportionate <laughs> or whatever, or like white people get something out of it too, you know, power and all that stuff. If racism's like project is to divide and, you know, say this person is not like that person and, and from that division uh, create a world where some people can be exploited and abused, then it's important to resist that division, right? that but we can't do it in a like hokey pokey we're all one people <laughs> you know um but the connection you know like the poem like of the deadly poison that racism is for all of us like part of what um the people in this workshop are like basically this doesn't apply to me, what this topic, you know, like the white people are like, the, the one person's like, my black friend wanted me to come. So I'm a good friend um, or whatever. Um, but there actually is, um, you know, like there is a poison like for everyone and it's, different and it's not equivalent, you know, and the people who like suffer the most are obviously like indigenous people, black people, people of color, um, and in, in all sorts of myriad ways. Um, but to, to not point out the connection that that white people are poisoned too, 
by this total fantasy land um, is like both like not like politically productive because then you're just gonna like rely on the the white power people out of their own benevolence thinking they're just doing a charitable good deed basically rather than being like oh i'm i'm being poisoned by this too not in the same way but i actually want out of this as well you know like i um and i don't know i i was it actually makes me think of um i was talking with someone who who lives in around the neighborhood and we were where i live and we were trying to do some you know neighborhood work and all that stuff yeah she was saying you know and and she's latina and indigenous um and was like we were sort of talking about like why would you know multiracial organizing basically be important or something like that and something she said that really stuck with me was like what i would want to know from people like especially if it's like if i'm going to work with white people on something is like why do you in your own life want to like end white supremacy like what what are the stakes for you like can you like articulate those for yourself and are you committed to doing that um because i think yeah i don't know i don't know that just like um i've been sitting with that a lot um because i mean i and it's not again it's things get twisted it's not like we have to reframe everything in terms of our own self-interest um it's just that there's a there's a i just think there's a collective that there's a a, a number there's a group of people <laughs> that we are a part of um and like for all of us it's important or something um so i don't know and and that that just uh, that part of the poem really resonated with me there's the new book the sum of us about the economic cost of racism over time um, to everyone and i think you can very easily draw connections that point to the like social level loss when you have a, a population separated by color and then undereducated how many people had they had proper access to education who knows what scientific discoveries will come from them you know i forget there's some quote about this that's like i care less about einstein's brain than the fact that there's like 500,000 einsteins who will never get discovered or something i don't know who said that but there's a there's a quote to that effect that i'm sure is on a poster in like a public library somewhere <laughs> um, yeah but like that is that is the other element of this was like where you systemically undervalue and 
undereducate and underserve communities, like you are harming everyone. That's something that I really like about this poem is that even though it is kind of straightforward, it is still brings up a lot of these complexities of like the interaction that's highlighted of, of all the comments that a poem could have been written about. That one is really illustrative of a lot of different things. And the way that when the speaker eventually literally speaks in the setting of the workshop, the way that that is contextualized isn't just about, you know, the impression that we already get from this inner monologue. We learn that there was a different presented monologue that has other elements to it that is trying to accomplish maybe a different goal. The, the goal of this poem is to let you into the speaker's mind. The goal of that, you know, statement in the workshop setting was like, it's only her change I need. I'm trying to frame this in a way that is palatable and that will bring along the reluctant folks. I don't know. I, I've been thinking a lot about, and I'm, I'm reading um, Miriam Kaba's new book, uh, We Do This Till We Free Us, which is a collection of her essays and interviews and stuff. And she's a just a wonderful activist, prison abolitionist, police abolitionist. And, and she says in one of the pieces, like, well, it's, it's, it's from the piece where she talks about how um, hope for her is a, is a discipline. Um, it's something that she practices, which I think I, I might have brought up, I think, um, on our episode with Corey. But then she also talks about how, like, you know, everyone is is born just like totally incidentally on the timeline of history or something like you weren't born at the right moment or the wrong moment. Like you're just you're there and you can kind of like maybe figure out better where you are <laughs> and what you can do based on where you are in that timeline or whatever. But like some people will be born when, you know, more change or whatever is possible. And some people, you know, it, it won't be like able to be evident or whatever. Um, and so, and you can't do anything about that part. Um, and so she was just saying, you know, if I can help, one or two people here, one or two people there, like that, that's gotta be enough for me. Um, and I don't know, it makes me think of that, that ending. Cause I was like, I don't know. There's just always this weird relationship between the individual and the collective and the systemic and the historical and all this stuff. And I really like poetry because it it engages with all of those things in in a in a really fascinating way. Um, but I think ending there, it's only her change I need, which also is interesting too because it's like I don't the speaker does not need her. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't need she doesn't need to be in the speaker's life at all. Um, her change. The speaker needs um you know at least at the end and, and again it's like it's not that they were oh it was good that i went there after all um something in that event was something important um 
and also just the fact that like it's only her change i need yeah i don't know it, it's a it's a profound kind of turn yeah and you're right it does bring in that kind of hopeful ish element obviously it's tempered by uh the bitch voice that jumps in to say the change was maybe not much but there is still that kind of hanging on at the end of maybe I inspired some change and really that's the important thing. There's another poem in Fugitive Colors called They're Always Telling Me I'm Too Angry that I think captures, it's a it's a long poem and this is like a little part from the end that I think gets at, at least in circa 1995, where Christos was on the kind of anger, hope, activism how that was all coming together. And at the end of they're always telling me I'm too angry is very long poem with a lot of different specific stuff that touches on a lot of the different issues that Christos has done activism around the poem ends. If you can speak, you can be angry. If you can't speak, bang your fork. If you're furious with me because I haven't mentioned something you're angry about, get busy and write it yourself. There is no such beast as too angry. I'm a canary down in this mine of apathy, singing and singing my yellow throat on fire with this sacred, holy, purifying spirit of anger. Which is mm. like, whoa. But I feel like that is the kind of tempered hope, fuel for activism, and like such a strong statement of like, artistic and personal placement uh, and attitude that I then begin feeling that in parts of this poem, which is a much less, you know, that's a really kind of, this is what I'm about ending to a very complex poem um, that kind of builds to that, like, this is where I stand statement. Whereas in here we have, as we were talking about, like, this is more humorous, it's more wry and knowing, and it builds to this moment of like, tempered hope that comes from i think that activism drive to be the canary in the mind of apathy like hopefully speaking in this workshop hopefully that knocked somebody out of their apathy and inspired change should we read it again let's read it again into the racism workshop by christos for Alma Banda Goddard. My cynical feet ambled, prepared for indigestion, and blank faces of outrageous innocence, knowing I'd have to walk over years of media declaring were vanished or savage or pitiful or noble. My toes twitched when I saw so few brown faces. But really, when one eats racism every time one goes out one's door, the appeal of talking about it is minuscule. I sat with my back to the wall facing the door, after I changed the chairs to a circle. This doesn't really protect me, but I con myself into believing it does. One of the first speakers piped up, I'm only here because my friend is black and wanted me to do this with her. I've already done 300 too many racism workshops. Let it be entered into the book of stars that I did not kill her or shoot a scathing reply from the hip. I let it pass because I could tell she was very interested in taking up 
all the space with herself, and would do it if I said a word. They all said something that I could turn into a poem, but I got tired and went to sleep behind my interested eyes. I've learned that the most important part of these tortures is for them to speak about racism at all. Even showing up is heresy, because as we all know, racism is some vague thing that really doesn't exist, or is only the skinheads on a bad day, or isn't really a crucial problem, not as important certainly as queers being able to marry or get insurance for each other. When they turned to me as a resident expert on the subject, which, quite honestly, I can't for the life of me understand or make any sense out of, I spoke from my feet things I didn't know I knew of our connections, of the deadly poison that racism is for all of us. Maybe some of them were touched, but my bitch voice jumps in to say, not much. I heard back that someone thought I was brilliant. Does that mean that I speak well? Or that she was changed? It's only her change I need. So, Connor. So, Jack. What, uh, besides the poetry of Christos, mm. what have you been reading, watching, listening to? What are you about these days? Well... Honestly, I have been watching the NBA playoffs. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I was I was recently watching The Last Dance, which is like <laughs> NBA playoffs history. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, unfortunately, the Bulls are not in the playoffs. Darn. Um Yep, I I uh it's been it's been fun. Um Little sports here and there. Um, I'm rooting for the Sixers. Sarita is uh, from Philly. She is a big Sixers fan, and I am uh, happy to root for the Sixers. Uh, (laughs) 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 Well, really, um, actually, Sarita said before one of the Sixers games it's like poetry on the court all right and, you know I think there's some truth to that what um, uh what poet or poem do you think the Sixers most play like whoa very interesting hmm they lost the first game of the semifinals right the sixers they were down by a lot 26 points at half 20 points it was like my friend she stopped watching because it was so bad then their defense just goes ham okay like totally intense rattles them like and they get it to like within one shot uh they end up losing but it's truly like remarkable just like frenetic d um it reminds me a little bit of the (laughs) just the energy of like feeling fucked up by etheridge knight which is basically just like fuck this fuck that fuck this fuck that but like in a really rhythmic way and it's just like 
I just want my woman back so my soul can sing is how it ends. Um, but then also, so they got Ben Simmons, right? He's very good. And he's like a point guard. He doesn't make too many points, but he's dishing it out. He's making plays. He's seeing it. And they don't have like, then they got Joel Embiid, who's like killing it, just scoring all the time. But they don't have one of those like monster, like LeBron type players. And so then I was thinking of, which I don't really know why, it's that swelling poem that we talked about. Cinco de Mayo, not about, I mean, the content of these poems are not completely unrelated. It's the feeling. It's but, the feeling. I mean, my question is about the feeling. Entirely. Yeah, yeah. It's not um, like which poem is about this, <laughs> is about them. That would be a different question. Because like with Cinco de Mayo, it's building all the time. And it's got this momentum. And it's not, but it's kind of like the team in that it's a very integrated whole. So I would go with that. I would say the defensive moment in that's feeling fucked up, but then generally the team play, it's like Cinco de Mayo by Luis Rodriguez. All right, I'm into it. But that's, to be honest, that's what I've been doing. That's the media I've been taking in. How about you, Jack? Talk to me. Oh, boy. Fill me in. Raise me up. <laughs> this is a tall order <laughs> um, because I've mostly been wasting my time. Uh, well, the recently canceled, apparently incredibly expensive Netflix series, Jupiter's Legacy, which I really enjoyed. The wigs are terrible. The old age makeup is bad and kind of inexcusable for a budget of $200 million for some Whoa. episodes of internet television. But maybe they spent it all in the writer's room because the writing, like thematically, is fascinating. In the 30s, this group of people end up getting superpowers, but it also takes place in the present day where all of them are still alive. They're very old. They're like over 100 now, but they all still have powers and they also have kids who have powers who are all like Instagram influencers and whatever. Um, and some of them are also doing superhero crime fighting, but in the early days of them being superheroes, the main dude, Utopian, uh, <laughs> whose regular name is like Carl or something, uh, <laughs> he put together a code because they're not obviously bound by any governments or any anything. And so part of the code is that they don't interfere. So there was major conflict in the group around world events like World War II, which still happens in this universe. And they like don't intervene in it and it causes strife amongst them. But also in the present day, they have a complete no killing rule because they're superpower. They cannot like his big, one of the big rules in the code from Utopian is we don't kill. And in an early episode, I don't think this is a spoiler or anything, but his son kills a superpowered villain who is about to kill Utopian and his wife. And so then there's this really fascinating conversation about them as superheroes and whether or not they can or should ever kill. And uh, the younger generation of heroes feel like they are being unfairly hamstrung by this code and that, you know, the streets are getting 
worse and the supervillains are getting more villainous and dangerous and we need to kill to protect ourselves. Why won't you let us? And it's the older guard of heroes who are like, no, actually, if we start killing, where does it stop? And obviously it has some pretty strong resonance with contemporary conversations around policing that I thought was really thematically interesting. Apparently no one else watched or enjoyed this show. And so Netflix has already canceled it. (laughs) But I think that's also because they spent almost a quarter of a billion dollars on it and like couldn't pay for good wigs or old age makeup. Um, Yeah. So that's been going on in my sporting world. (laughs) <laughs> obviously number one it's the french open right now um which is cool but we are on the eve of the 2021 world's strongest man competition oh and so naturally <laughs> that has been taking up most of my sports watching energy because the groups have been announced the events for the group stages have been announced and i've been happily tinkering away with my predictions of who's going to make the final and no matter who gets into the final it is just a stacked lineup it's going to be great for any of the strongman fans out there uh of whom i'm sure there is vast crossover in the close talking audience um (laughs) it's really an astounding sport coming to sacramento california so yeah, will Brian Shaw win his fifth World Strongest Man title, tying Marius Pujanowski for the most ever? Or will Tom Stoltman finally find himself atop the podium? The albatross, as he is known for his very long arms. Uh, he's like six foot nine. Uh, or will That's... Alexei Novikov defend his title? Who knows? Wow. Or maybe a surprise dark horse, like the ever-improving Canadian J.F. Kowal. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner-Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. And the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.